Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. So, hi everybody and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. Um, it's a joy, as someone called Russell, who never gets the chance to actually interview anyone called Russell, to have in front of me today a Russell. Uh, this is a Russell Heath, no less, who's both a coach, but also an author. And he's from one of my favourite places in the world. Um, anyone that knows my predilection for loving cruising will know that I love Alaska. And um, he probably is raising his eyes to heaven thinking, oh my goodness, not a cruise ship person coming and polluting my lovely country. But today we have with us Russell Heath. Good afternoon, Russell. Oh, hey, Russell. Thank you for having me on the show. And, well, we put up with you cruisers. <laughs> I think it's the economy of a lot of Alaska. I mean, I know there's a little bit of oil and salmon, but I've heard, uh, you know, I've heard of that stuff. <laughs> it is a bit of the economy. And of course, it's been pretty difficult in the last year. Yeah, I bet. And I think um, Alaska is the largest state in America. Is that right? I know we often hear about Texas, but I understand Alaska is the real deal. Alaska is twice as large as, as Texas. And and you know, there's a there's a conspiracy against Alaska because anytime you see a map of the United States, they put Alaska down in the left-hand corner next to Hawaii, and it makes it look like the size of a of a of a of a nickel. Of, and um, <clears throat> it doesn't give the true size of Alaska at all on those maps. And it is an utterly remarkable country. It was you know a real a really fantastic place, and I, I've been there a couple of times. It's just a remarkable place. So Russell, it's going to be a joy chatting to you and um, finding out about you. So why don't you give us a bit of an overview of what it is you do? So right now, I do three different things. One is I'm a life and leadership coach, and I've been a coach for about ten years, and I work with with high performing professionals who are suck in some way in their careers or in their lives and they want more out of their out of their professions and so i I've, um it's been really quite rewarding i've learned a tremendous a tremendous amount from these folks who come to me saying listen i've been very successful in what i've done i'm making a lot of money i've got a family i got a good house and i'm bored or i'm not challenged and i want something more and i don't know what it is and so we take it from there interesting and so Let's um, and so how did you get into this world? I mean, tell me, tell me your sort of a bit of a the life story. Well, well, that's a really that's a really good question, and it's a bit of a long story. But when, in Alaska, I I ran an environmental group, advocacy group for many years, and you know when you were cruising, you probably went up the southeast 
part of Alaska through all the islands and whatnot. So that whole area is called the Tongass National Forest. It's 18 million acres. So that puts it at about, you know, seven, um, seven or eight million hectares and America's largest national forest. And it's a rainforest. So the trees are tremendously big. The area is tremendously product, um, productive. And the environmental group that I was running oversees and tries to protect that area of the world. Oh. And what I noticed over the years is that, that the group, what we were able to do was limited, <clears throat> not by lack of resources, not by the bad guys, not by circumstances. It was mostly limited by my leadership. I could only take that organization as far as I <clears throat> personally was developed in ways, as personally as I could, as I could. And as a as an environmentalist, there's a lot of, um, of support structures for environmental folks in the United States. And I went to several leadership trainings. But what I noticed is that the leadership trainings focused on skills, like how to give a better presentation, how to organize, how to do, do staff management plans. But if you didn't have the underlying behavior with which to deploy those skills, it was valueless. So just as an example, you can learn how to give a good talk but if you're on the stage and you're timid and mousy, that talk will fail, no matter how good your skills are. It's how you're being on that stage that really, really um, impacts your, your speaking. How can you show up on that stage confident and, and in command? So it was those internal kind of behaviors that I want to develop and not the skills. I'm not a pretty bright guy. I can read a, a book and, and learn how to give a talk uh, on my own, but it's developing those skills. So I left Alaska in 2010 and moved to New York City specifically to get into leadership coaching. And as I was, I spent four years doing this as a client, essentially, really developing myself, really learning how to be a leader. And at the same time, so this was soon after the crash, I was unable to get a job in New York City. And after years of frustration of, of just doing doing work as it came along, I said, oh, I'm going to go into business myself. And what I really know well now is leadership coaching. So at that point, I went to a school to really train myself as a professional coach. And I've done that ever since. And and um, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because um, a lot of people think about that, don't they? They think, um, you know, I've reached a certain stage in my life and actually I have some wisdom. Um, and a lot of people just sort of launch into coaching, but I'm, I'm impressed at the way you've gone and had some professional development before you started, because there's a lot of coaches out there that really know nothing. And, you know, people like ourselves who are trained and accredited and qualified and insured and registered, it's quite irritating, isn't it? Just to see people pontificating without any sort of chops behind it, as it were, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and I don't know how it is in, in Britain, but in the United States, there are no there's no formal licensing that you need to do to be able to call yourself a coach. So if, mm. if you're a therapist, you yeah. know, you have to pass a, a state board or a state and get a state license and, and in coach, that's not the case. So anyone can call themselves a coach, but if you want to be a good coach and I'm, I'm not out there to rip people off. I'm out there both to develop myself and to make a difference for people. So it was important for me that I had the, the uh, you know, the training in order to do that, the training and the development in order to do that. Interesting. Oh, okay. So you decided to become a coach and obviously you became a coach. Well, and so you've talked about this idea of people being stuck 
um, which I think is a great way of um, putting it. So tell me a bit more about what you mean by that. Yeah, so let me let me put that into into the the kind of the framework that I understand it. Okay. And the framework that I understand it is we humans at a very young age develop a set of behaviors and a set of, and a way of looking at the world, which just for simplicity's sake, I will call it your contraption. Okay. So you develop a way of looking at the world, a set of behaviors, a set of values at a very young age. And the purpose of this is your own physical and emotional survival. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're a tiny little thing running around with all these, these massive adults, and it's scary. And then, of course, there's emotional, <clears throat> the emotional component, too. Is, you know, how do you protect yourself from, from slights and insults and, and, and whatever? So we develop that. And some of us are fortunate that this contraption that we've developed can be really effective. We can really produce results from this. But at some point in, in, a in a person's life, and usually in the 30s and 40s, it can be later, people realize that this contraption, which was designed for your survival, isn't producing contentment or satisfaction or fulfillment or isn't providing much meaning in their lives, mm. all right? And they get stuck because all they know is this contraption. It's like their universe, their world. And in, as a coach, what I need to do or what we need to do is pop people out of that contraption into a larger realm and look at the world from the point of view of you know, what will produce meaning, what will produce fulfillment. Or, or it, just excitement. And is this what you mean by ontological coaching? Yes. Okay. So ontological coaching, ontology is the study of being. Yeah. And, and what I try to do as an ontological coach is give or, or work with a person, to develop the capacity to choose how they're being in any moment, regardless of the circumstances. And to a certain extent, people do this all the time. So as a parent, you know, your kid does something, tosses the oatmeal, the gruel on the floor, right? And you just want to yell at, the, at your kid. But you stop, you take a couple of deep breaths, and you say, well, you know, Joey, we don't really toss our super, you know, our cereal on the floor. That's not what we do here. So you've changed your being in the moment, right? So to, to a certain extent, we all have that capacity. But as a coach, I want to develop it so that you can do it instantly in the moment, regardless of the circumstances. Interesting. And so, um, and so going back to the stuckness then, is the, so the basically the narrative you have in your head is the same narrative you've always had and somehow it's just not working anymore or you've got bored with it or it's not getting the results you want. Is, is, that, is that sort of fair? I mean, you no, use the phrase golden handcuffs, which I quite like. I mean, tell me more about that. So, well, I think you actually put down a really important world. You're not getting the results you want. Mm. So many of us, you know, often when we're going through life, we evaluate things, not in terms of the results we're getting, but we make ourselves victims or we, we, we blame other people for what's happening to, uh, to us. But really, if you start asking, what am I doing to produce the results I'm getting? Yeah. Do I want these results? And if no, what do I need to do differently? So... It seems like a basic question, but it's really powerful. What do I need to do differently? Who do I need to be to get different results in the world? And then of course the golden handcuffs and in, in, do you use that phrase in Britain? Yes, yes, yeah, we do. Right, so the golden handcuffs are that you're, you are paid yeah. an ex extraordinary amount or you have a job that provides a lot of status, you know, to, 
two things that are kind of external to ourselves, the money and the status, that we often have a great difficulty giving up mm. in service of something that's more meaningful. And isn't it fascinating because um, we see this in sport a lot, don't we? We'll see um, it's more it's more obvious in sport. We have that situation where, so for example, in, in our country, we've had a, a couple of players who have been massively overpaid and their performance dropped significantly almost as a result of that. And you often find the same thing happening when someone has achieved something, don't you? They, they've, they've either got, like, especially in sport, for example, you've won a championship or you've won a Super Bowl or whatever it might be. And, and I think the key of what you're talking about is that it's how do you, it's how do you avoid becoming stuck and either, you know, have yourself a new goal or you say to yourself, well, actually, this massive payday isn't about being stuck. It's about, it's about the springboard to something else. But actually, if your narrative has been, when I do that, I will have won. And then when you've won, well, what comes next? It's a tricky one, isn't it? It, it is a tricky one, particularly when what we've won may not be what we what we really wanted. Yeah. You know, we might be conflicted about what's our, our, our important goal. It is. And it's fascinating because in business, the winning thing is much less obvious, isn't it? So, you know, I, I noticed in your in your website, you talk about, you know, the drive to the corner office. And, you know, you often find a lot of people. In fact, I've, I've been in that situation myself. I've worked with CEOs who their one goal has become to become a CEO. And then they've got there and they just, and they sort of, and A, they realize they've got no power. <laughs> and B, they realize that the getting there wasn't much fun because they've got been so focused on getting there, they've not enjoyed the journey often. And so when you get there, you don't relish the opportunities that sit in front of you or think, well, how do I make this work and you know move forward and such like? So I, I think uh, in a way you describe it for me what we call purpose, but you're just using a different word, which which I like actually. I think it's a clever way of coming coming at it. It's very interesting. I mean, would you would you accept that changing someone's purpose, someone's narrative is the key part uh, part of unsticking? Yes. And, you know, narrative is a, a funny word. I think it's a little overused in the United States right now. Okay, we, we don't use it much over here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we get all into the political narratives and the oh, postmodernist narratives and all yeah. that stuff like that. But in essence, you know, we're in conversation with ourselves. Yeah. On a day-to-day basis. In fact, we talk to ourselves more than anybody else, any other being on the planet. Yeah. And that conversation kind of predetermines how we see the world, how yeah. we see reality. And shifting that, can produce different results. But, you know, in ontological coaching, they're more than, than, we need to shift more than our linguistic world. So there's also our emotional world and then our somatic or our physical world. And all three of those realms of being human have to shift in order to cause um, lasting yeah. change. So how does a coach help someone? Because of course you're not doing it to someone, you're helping someone change it for themselves. So how is a coach, if someone's to pop along and have a session with you, how is it you would help someone change that, or change that triad of aspects for themselves? So, so I mean, that's a complicated question. Let me see if I can, I can answer it in a, in a short, uh, short answer. Basically it's awareness. Good. A person understands how they're using the language, how that language is producing the results they get, how that language both influences how they feel and how their feeling influences their language, right? And then how that all shows up in their body. So, so basically it's awareness that happens through conversation. But if you don't connect awareness 
with doing something different out in the world, you don't get different results. Yeah. So it's really important, as we say, to put rubber to the road here. Once they've got the awareness, you know, I ask the client, well, what are you going to do differently this, this week? Mm. How are you going to be out in the world differently than you have it in the past? So we get different results. So that's what I'd say, awareness yeah, that, and action. Yeah, and I think that's key, isn't it? Because actually part of the job of a coach is to hold the mirror up someone and, and give that, you know, I'm, your, I'm on your side, your critical friend in a sense. So this is what I'm actually hearing. You believe you're this, but this is what I actually know you to be. It's a very, it's sometimes a very difficult thing to hear, isn't it? And I think you talk about no BS. And I think there's a lot of people out there who worry a bit too much about hurting people's feelings. Yet our job as coaches to is to say the things that need to be said, because if we don't, who will? Well, I think also the skill of a coach is being able to say what needs to be said without hurting somebody's feelings mm. or, you know, have them come to their own awareness. Mm. So it's not me telling them what's going on, but they see what's going on. Yeah, that's that's the, the subtlety of the craft there. Yeah, the non-directive approach. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, excellent. So so you became a CEO, you've now become a coach and now you've become an author. So, I mean, you know, you go from one um, lonely world to another. So. Tell me about the decision to become an author. What was all that about? All right. Well, that actually happened quite a while ago. So here it is. I'm kayaking around Baranoff Island. Baranoff Island is one of the largest islands in Southeast Alaska. Right. And it's a three-week kayak trip. And this wow. is alter, utter wilderness. You know, if, if, if your folks have never been out of Britain and really seen utter wilderness, there is nothing around. And my companion there read a book by an Alaskan author. And when she finished it, I said, was it any good? She said, oh, it's great. So I read it and it was dreck. It was terrible. I couldn't believe how bad it was. And I said, Irene, this is terrible. She said, yeah, I know, but I didn't want to influence your opinion. And I said, I wanted my opinion influenced. I wasted hours of my life reading this, this, this terrible stuff. So, and of course, you know, I'm full of hubris. So the immediate next thing I said, is I can do better than this. And that was the decision. So, all right, I'm gonna write, a, this was a mystery story. Yeah. I'm gonna write a mystery story and I'm gonna do better than this guy. And you based it in Alaska, of course. Both of my novels are, are Alaskan. Yeah. The first one, you know, Broken Angels is, well, I, I, I need to tell you, I, I, um, I spent a year trying to figure out how to write the novel. I mean, yeah. you, you say you want to write a novel, but how do you get started? Yeah. I had no idea. I just sit there and look at the screen and, and nothing would come for a whole year. And then one day I remember- You were stuck, in other words. I was terribly stuck. This is creatively stuck, maybe yeah. not ontologically stuck. Who knows? Yeah, now I get it. And uh, there's an American author named Jane Smiley. And I was just driving down the road one day and I remembered her and she, she'd written a book called A Thousand Acres. And I was reading the book. I realized it was a scene by scene ripoff you know, she had nicked Shakespeare's King Lear. Oh, right. Okay. And she transferred Lear, you know, from medieval England into um, a ranch in Iowa, a farm in Iowa, a thousand acres. Right. And they didn't haul her off to jail for plagiarism. They gave her the Pulitzer Prize. So I said, why not? Why not? Let <laughs> me find not to. <laughs> <laughs> Someone had a copyright. Me... Yeah, not a copyright. So I said, let me find a, a, a play that's out of copyright and I'll steal that. And I got to thinking, so what's the first mystery in, in Western literature, at least that I can remember, was Oedipus Rex by Sophocles. Yeah. And, you know, he was dead 2,500 years, so he's not going to. Yes, safe. 
yeah, I was safe. He wasn't going to come after me for ripping off his stuff. So I based my first novel on Oedipus Rex in Alaska. You see, I think that's a very creative, practical solution. No, that's a very creative solution to a prob to a problem. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's very practical and very applicable for other people because you're saying, what works over here? How do I take that as a metaphor almost and apply it in a different way? I think that's a, a brilliant problem-solving approach. Uh, did well, you use Shakespeare did. Shakespeare, yeah. Shakespeare took, nicked everybody's stuff, allegedly. Everybody's stuff, yeah. <laughs> Just in case his agent's hanging around. Um, so um, And so you've written another book as well. Is that the same sort of idea? Is that a, is that a different novel or a different structure or same, same idea with different working? It, it's 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 very different book it's so broken angels is very dark and as you know because it's based on a greek tragedy it doesn't yeah. turn out well but Ren's crossing is 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 um not anywhere near as dark and it was based on a question it was sparked by a question i had so i'm an environmental group i'm you know environmentalist and i was concerned about the logging that was happening on the tongas forest and i i got to thinking well why don't I just go down to some of those logging camps and destroy all their machinery? Just right. take it all out. No one would catch me because it's very isolated. There's no security there. And I could disappear into the woods and they'd never find me. And then I thought, well, what would I do if somebody else were accused of my crime? And that kicked off the novel. So the so we have a classic Alaskan goes down, takes out the machinery of a, a logging camp, and his ex-lover is accused of a crime. And then the third twist in here is that the logging camp that he, where he sabotaged the machinery was run by his former best friend, hmm. an Alaskan native. So that, that's, the, uh, that's the beginning premise of the story. It's a very complex novel and it just races, races through. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And actually, whilst we're chatting, and I know I shouldn't be doing this, I should be giving you my full attention, but I've always loved going on Amazon and having a look. And, you know, you've got a ton of really good um, reviews to this. I mean, there's always people that don't like it. The hater is going to hate, aren't they? But the reason they hate it is because the characters are too well drawn. So I think that's quite interesting, is that if you're going to be criticised for being too good, that's not a problem. But I mean, there's a, you know, there's a raft of enthusiasm around it. So um, um, tell me, how, how do we... Well, obviously, you can get hold of the books on Amazon. And I'm guessing .com as well as and .co.uk, so that's all great. Um, but you've got your own website as well. So tell me a little bit about how people can get a hold of you and talk to you either about coaching or the books. So, so if if you're interested in coaching, and I'd be glad to work with you. I, as I as I said, I work with with clients now all over the world through the good agency of Zoom or Skype, and um, RussellHeath.net is my coaching website. Yeah. And uh, yeah, take a look at it. And, and if you're stuck in your life, you know, give me a ring and let's see what we can, we can make happen. Yeah. And then if you're looking for a good read, my website is russellheathauthor.com. And that's the American spelling of author. So, um, oh my God, I didn't know you guys spelled that differently. And we, we spell things properly because we, you know, it is called English. So see, I think you find the <laughs> Americans. <laughs> I only have to say aluminum to you once and you, and you get where I'm coming from here. Yeah, it's a, source of a, a, a lot of amusement in the UK about how the way you guys can't stretch to the extra U in a word. So uh, 
it's because we all love you really we love americans on the whole so it's uh, it's very fond rubbing and teasing i think that comes from us but yes yeah, so, so it's russell I, I know we're just insignificant colonials colonists over here common colonists that's right yeah yes. so it's russellheatauthor.com without the u and it's russellheath.net and that's important isn't it because you would expect.com but you are.net so um have a look at russell's work he's actually got some really fascinating articles on there which i um I'm, i've just marked a couple to read later on um one of the joys of this um um job of hosting a podcast is despite being this my specialist area i do love seeing what other people are saying so uh it's been a joy to talk to you today, Russell. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you. And this is this has been quite, you've asked very good questions and I really appreciate it. You're more than welcome. Been a great guest as well. So you take care and I'll and wish you all the best. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed. And if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.